Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Big E here. This is Law for Virginia Law Enforcement Officers. It's episode 61. And today we're going to be talking about the emergency exception to the Fourth Amendment because of a really interesting new case from the Court of Appeals that was uh, handed down here in Virginia just a couple of weeks ago on November 9th of 2021. So if you've been listening to the podcast, uh, you know this is a podcast where we talk about law. What do you need to know about law in Virginia as a law enforcement officer, police, sheriff, detective, investigator, special agent? What constitutional law, Virginia cases, what new federal and state laws do you need to know to serve and protect your communities and to become a better law enforcement officer? Gotten great feedback from you guys, and we've had some fascinating cases come out recently you know, for a while there, because cases didn't go to trial during COVID, there weren't a lot of appeals. And so we went for a few weeks there this summer without a lot of cases, but it's going to start picking up. We're getting some rulings now. The Court of Appeals is basically, at this point, basically approving every case for appeal because come January, Virginia Court of Appeals, we're going to go to a system called Appeal of Right. And this is the way it is in the Fourth Circuit. If you go to trial, you automatically get an appeal. Uh, and that law was changed along with all the other, you know, big changes in the law by the General Assembly in those special session in 2020 and then the 2020 regular 2021 regular session. All those big changes, one of the changes they made was now everybody gets an appeal. Everybody gets to appeal their case. You don't have to necessarily have uh, an interesting issue or a challenging issue. So they're going to be approving and they really basically already have been approving pretty much every case for appeal. We're going to see a lot more opinions, a lot more rulings. And uh, that gives us a lot more to talk about on this podcast. Today, though, I want to focus on the emergency aid exception to the Fourth Amendment. And this was an exception that is really important because of a Supreme Court ruling that we talked about on this podcast a few episodes ago uh, when we talked about the um, in episode 50, about 11 episodes ago, the, the community caretaker ruling in Kendiglia versus Strom. And today we're going to be talking about a case from the Fourth Circuit Court of, excuse me, from the um, from the from the Virginia Court of Appeals, and that case is called McCarthy versus Commonwealth. It's a case from Chesapeake, and the facts of McCarthy are uh, are interesting. Uh, so what happens in McCarthy is uh, officers get a essentially anonymous call that somebody in a hotel room is overdosing and needs help. Police officers respond. The door is kind of open already to the hotel room, so they can see into the hotel room, and they can see someone's foot sticking out from behind the bed. They immediately make entry and find somebody who is uh, sweating profusely, pale in the face, cool to touch. He's unconscious. He's struggling to breathe. They think this person's overdosing. Uh, medics show up. They Everybody tries to revive this guy. They're not able to do it. And so the officers start to try to figure out, well, what's going on? If he is overdosing, if he isn't overdosing, and if so, uh, overdosing on what? And they immediately then begin, they first sort of visually scan the area. They don't see anything. They look around. So then they start looking through drawers. And pretty quickly, they open up a drawer and they find heroin. And informing the medics of that sus substance and telling them, hey, we got heroin here, the medics then continue their work. And ultimately, they are able to revive him. And uh, he admits that he's smoked, uh, snorted heroin. He goes to trial and he is convicted of, he moves to suppress and the trial court denies the motion um, and he's convicted. Now, when the trial court denies the motion, it's important to know when this happened. This case happened back in 2019. 
And when the trial court denied the motion, they said these officers were acting under the community caretaker exception to the Fourth Amendment warrant requirement. That, however, that ruling took place before the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in 2021, in this, just this past spring, that the community caretaker exception doesn't extend to warrantless searches and seizures in someone's home. And so while his appeal was pending, the U.S. Supreme Court basically said, hey, trial court, the reasoning that you used, that's not applicable in this case because this is a, a motel room and someone's motel room is their home during the period of time that they have it under lease or under rent. So they were the officers were essentially in this person's home and they were not permitted under the community caretaker exception to act without a warrant. But that begs the question, did what the officers was what the officers did lawful? And I think everybody here would say, well that's what we would do. I mean, that's just what you would do if you have somebody who's overdosing or somebody who's unconscious, who's not responsive, and you see them laying there on the floor, of course, you immediately start looking around to figure out, hey, what's the deal? Are they overdosing? Are they diabetic? Do they need heart medication? Do they have seizure anti-seizure medication? Do they have some kind of medical information? Do they have ID? Do they have a medical alert bracelet or something that I can find here that can tell me what's going on with this person or give me a clue to what's going on with this person? This is kind of policing 101, right? This is what anybody would do faced with this situation. But that doesn't answer the question then under the Fourth Amendment, is what the officers did lawful? And if so, why? Why would it be lawful? What's the doctrine? What's the theory? So, you know, up until now, I think most of us would have said, well, uh, it's lawful because of the community caretaker exception. And, uh, and that's what the trial court thought in this case, pretty much what the officers thought in this case. But again, the U.S. Supreme Court has since ruled um, that the, the recognition, recognizing law enforcement officers' caretaking duties, it doesn't create a standalone doctrine that justifies warrantless searches and seizures in the home. So first of all, what is the community caretaker doctrine? It doesn't apply here. So when does it apply, right? Well, it applies out in public, right, in, when you're not in the home. And of course, the core of the Fourth Amendment is the home, right? That's the place the Fourth Amendment protects more than anything else. The home and, of course, now electronic devices, phones and computers. Um, so it's very hard to get over that, right? If I'm going to be, uh, if I'm going to be executing, a, if I'm going to be searching a home without a warrant, generally speaking, I need to be either have consent or a warrant or exigent circumstances, right? Those are basically the only three situations. The community caretaker exception, though, outside of the home applies basically where a search is necessary to protect an owner's property while it's in police custody, or to protect the police against claims or disputes concerning lost or stolen property, or maybe lastly, to protect the public and police from physical danger. So what would be an example? Well, I think a good example would be you're going to court one day and you walk up the courthouse steps and there's a backpack on the front steps, right? Some abandoned backpack laying on the front steps of the courthouse. Uh, you know, well, okay, so if you're gonna pick this thing up, if you think it might be lost or abandoned, then you certainly at least wanna search it to protect the owner's property while it's in your custody. Uh, and you don't want to have any claim of lost or stolen property, so you'll need to inventory that. But among other things, you might also want to check if there's like an explosive device in it. And that's so that addresses also that concern for the, protecting the police and the public from physical danger. Because leaving a backpack on the courthouse steps in the morning would be uh, would also be something that would fit the profile of an explosive device, right? So you'll search it, make sure it's safe, you know, secure it in property and so on. But when you're doing that, the community caretaker exception is a very limited exception. And it only lets you search 
if your initial contact or investigation is reasonable, you make a limited intrusion, and you're not trying to investigate a criminal offense, right? So with my stolen backpack, certainly it's reasonable to remove that from the front courthouse steps. And it would be reasonable if you determine that it's safe and it doesn't have a bomb or anything like that in it to put it into police property. And then when you're searching that bag, you're basically you should just be inventorying it for valuables and also trying to see if you can figure out whose bag it is, right? So you're limited in that scope. You're not necessarily going to search everything. If you find a substance in there and you can't identify it, you may not necessarily send it to the Department of Forensic Science unless you have, you know, probable cause or some reason to believe that it's uh, illegal drugs, right? Because you're not doing a criminal investigation here. We're just trying to figure out whose bag it is, it's safe, and then uh, secure valuables inside. We're not doing a criminal investigation, right? So that's the community caretaker exception, but it doesn't apply in this case because we're inside someone's home, that is to say their motel room, and so it doesn't apply here. Before 2021, though, I think we all thought that this kind of search where we're finding somebody who's overdosing, somebody who's unconscious, somebody who needs medical help would have been a community caretaker search. I mean, that's what the fourth, what the trial court here thought. I mean, in Coniglia, that's what the First Circuit trial thought in that case. So now we're going to have to look somewhere else. Well, that takes us then back to this idea of this emergency aid exception. Now, like I said, there's only three ways into a, someone's home. Uh, they might consent. You might have a warrant of some kind, arrest or search warrant. And then number three is you might have some kind of exigent circumstance. Now, exigent circumstances oftentimes may involve a destruction of evidence or somebody fleeing from prosecution, right? We talked a lot about the exigent circumstance exception, uh, in fact, on this podcast uh, in, the, um, in, in a couple episodes ago. Back in episode 59, we talked about a guy barricaded with a gun and the question of, you know, was he going to flee or was he going to destroy evidence and that kind of stuff. We talked a lot about exigent circumstances there. But one of the features of the exigent circumstance exception that we don't talk about as much is this idea that you have somebody who is in an emergency that's not a criminal offense, but they need aid. It's an emergency aid situation. And that's another kind of exigent circumstance. This was an exception that the Virginia Supreme Court reaffirmed in a case this summer called Marid versus Commonwealth. And this was the first time that the Virginia Supreme Court had talked about uh, emergencies involving public safety after that Caniglia decision by the U.S. Supreme Court. So the Marid case was actually a pretty significant case. So, so what happened in Marid? I want to go back to that case from this summer. It was a decision by the Virginia Supreme Court on July 1. And it's a case where uh, the defendant, Mr. Marid, uh, up in Alexandria, murdered a woman in her apartment. Police didn't find out about the murder initially. What they what they responded to the apartment for was a suicide suicide threat. The defendant's brother uh, called the police, summoned the police. He was very concerned. He had gotten text messages from his brother saying that it, he was going to join their deceased mother. He said, "You have to forgive me." The office, the brother tried to reach his, uh, the defendant all day. He wasn't able to. Um, his brother shows up to the apartment. He can see the the cars in the parking lot. The officers show up. They run the tags. Um, they ultimately go to the front door, they bang on the door, they say, hey, come to the door, come to the door, he's not coming to the door, the brother's at the door, he's saying, come on, come to the door, come to the door, he's not, he's responding, he's like, hey, I'm getting dressed, are you okay, do you need medics, no, I'm okay, I'm getting dressed, but they can hear a sound inside the apartment that they describe as like a garble, like a throw-up sound, coughing, moaning, like somebody who's in pain, 
So the officers track down a key to the apartment. They let themselves in and they discover that there's a defendant inside stabbing himself in the throat. They immediately wrestle the defendant. They uh, confiscate the knife. They treat his injuries. Medics show up. And so they're in the dining room of this. They just go in and that's where the defendant is and they're treating him. So one of the officers says, well, I'm just going to make sure this scene is safe. I mean, we've got the knife away. We've got medics showing up. He's stabilized. But he starts walking around inside the apartment. And pretty quickly, he finds uh, the dead body of the woman that the defendant had killed in the apartment. Um, and, and and she's been tied to a chair. Her head's wrapped in plastic. Um, and she's been murdered. He, he murdered her. Um, the defendant moves to suppress but the trial court denies the motion, and the trial court in this case, and again, this is before the Caniglia versus Strom case from the U.S. Supreme Court, says, oh, yeah, community caretaker. Officers are permitted to enter a house if they feel like somebody's in physical danger, and the officers did in this case. And under the community caretaker exception, they were inside the apartment lawfully, and it was lawful for them to walk around the apartment, so uh, they deny the motion to suppress. It goes to the Court of Appeals. Court of Appeals agrees, says, yep, community caretaker, we're good, uh, and denies the motion to suppress. But then this Caniglia versus Strom case comes out and says, no, community caretaker doesn't, doesn't apply inside of the home. And so the case goes to the Virginia Supreme Court, who now has to decide this case without the Caniglia versus Strom, uh, uh, excuse me, with, this, with the community caretaker exception not applying. But here, right, what do they say? They say in this case, essentially, well, it was still lawful, though under the emergency aid exception to the search warrant requirement. And this is from a case called Brigham City versus Stewart that they quote, law enforcement officers may enter a home without a warrant to render emergency assistance to an injured occupant or to protect an occupant from imminent injury. And that's sort of the exigent circumstance exception that happens when you don't have a crime. Right, but you could still lawfully enter to help someone. And by the way, that's how the fire department enters. I mean, the fire department is still a government agency, uh, and they break into houses all the time when they're on fire. Why is that lawful? Again, it's an exigent circumstance, not involving a crime, not involving destruction of evidence or somebody fleeing from a crime or somebody who's a threat to public safety, but instead to, to assist somebody who's injured or in danger of imminent injury. So uh, here, then, the question becomes, is it lawful in, in the Marid case where the guy has stabbed himself to then walk around the rest of the apartment and uh, check to see if anybody else is present inside the apartment. Well, the court says in this case, Marid, the Marid case from the summer, that officers can conduct a cursory sweep of the residence after entering pursuant to the emergency aid exception uh, if that protective sweep would be reasonable under the circumstances. Right. In other words, is there an objectively reasonable basis to believe that there's an immediate need to protect other people? And um, is the kind of sweep the officers are conducting reasonable? Right. Well, clearly in the Marid case, the officers are getting a call from the guy's brother who thinks he's suicidal, who's concerned he's going to hurt himself. They go to the door. The guy's not answering the door. They can hear sounds like someone's in distress. And the guy, and so forcing their way in is lawful. And then when they see him with the knife stabbing himself, of course, it's lawful to restrain him, right? But it was certainly possible at that point and reasonable to believe there might be somebody else in here who's subjected to violence too. One thing I left out of the story, remember when they run that tag on the car in the parking lot? When they run the tag on the car in the parking lot, the brother says that's his car, but the car doesn't come back to the defendant. It comes back to someone else. 
What does that tell the officers? There's somebody else up there. It's a car that the defendant drives, but it's registered to somebody else. There's someone else involved in this case as well. And um, and at that point, too, EMS is about to transport him to the hospital. So uh, the court writes here, as far as the officers were concerned, there might have been a pet, a child, or an adult in need behind the closed door of the bedroom. It was certainly reasonable for the officers to ensure that the premises and any other occupants were safe and secure before they left. In fact, it would have been irresponsible for them to have done otherwise. So uh, I want you to remember that language here. The court says it certainly was reasonable. In fact, it would have been irresponsible for them to have done otherwise, right? The court here is kind of using a common sense interpretation. Of course, you know, EMS is about to transport this guy. He's just stabbed himself. He's suicidal. We have no idea who else is in this apartment, who else is abandoned inside. Are we going to leave without making sure that there's not someone else who's in distress? Or that, again, this, he's going to leave his dog for several days. I mean, you're not, getting out, you're not getting discharged that morning if you've just stabbed yourself in the throat repeatedly over and over again, right? Is there a child inside? Is there someone in need? Is there an elderly person who's about to be abandoned inside the apartment? It's absolutely reasonable. And in fact, it would be irresponsible to just be like, well, I'm not, not, you know, we're done. We're walking out. Of course you wouldn't do that, right? Of course you wouldn't do that. And that takes us back to our officers in this motel room uh, who are dealing with our overdosing Mr. McCarthy, right? So now we're back in, in, in the motel room with Mr. McCarthy. Now, at this point, we know that the U.S. Supreme Court has said that the community caretaker exception doesn't apply. But on the other hand, we do know that we have a vibrant and a lot very much alive and powerful exigent circumstance exception. And we know the exigent circumstance exception uh, encompasses situations where you might just have an emergency, not a non-criminal offense, just a pure emergency, a threat to public safety, right? And so we've got this guy who's laying on the floor, who's unconscious, pale in the face, cool to touch, sweating profusely, struggling to believe. He looks like he's overdosing. You look around, you don't see any kind of evidence, any kind of indication, any kind of a clue to what he's overdosing on or is he overdosing or is he diabetic or does he have a medical alert bracelet or does he have a heart condition or something like that so certainly you can look around right there's no question that you can visually look around and that's by the way what the officers do in the marid case right now in marid where the guy had stabbed himself in the apartment was committing suicide that was probably the only reasonable thing the officers could do, right? I don't think we would start opening up drawers and opening up cabinets and so on for him. The medics had stabilized him. It was clear why he was in that condition. He had stabbed himself. But it was reasonable to walk around and visually just look and make sure everything was okay. Uh, and that's all it took, by the way, to, of course, find the victim who'd been you know, tied up and killed. Here, though, we look around and we don't get a clue. We don't get any information about what's going on with this guy. And at this point, the medics are working on him. They've given him Narcan. Um, it's not working yet. He's not responsive to the Narcan treatment. So now we're going to start opening drawers because we still have to resolve this emergency. We haven't resolved it yet. The, 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 you should know that the nightstand wasn't very close by. It wasn't necessarily within arm's reach, but it was still in the same motel room. So it was reasonable to look in that drawer. Um, he, the court also said, you know, he clearly had fallen off the bed. He was on the floor. The bed sheets were on the floor. He had clearly been laying next to the nightstand. So again, it's reasonable to suspect that the nightstand next to the bed where he had been sleeping or laying before he fell on the floor 
uh, would would potentially have it would be reasonable to believe it would have evidence of why he's in this medical state. And here again, you have this language pop up. The court writes, in fact, it would very likely it very likely would have been irresponsible for the officers not to have searched the nightstand when considering that his uh, Mr. McCarthy's life was still in danger and EMS personnel had not identified the cause of his circumstances. So notice, right, the same kind of language that you have in Marid, right, that talk about it, it would be irresponsible for officers not to go looking inside of this space. Just like in Marid, it would have been irresponsible for the officers not to walk around and make sure before they uh, took Mr. Marid bleeding out of the apartment that there wasn't somebody else inside who was about to be abandoned who might be in danger, especially since there's a clear indication that there probably was somebody else there because uh, they had run the tag on the car in the parking lot and the tag had come back to somebody else. So here again, notice the court's using very common sense language here. Uh, you know, we're here, we've got this guy who's coding out, who's dying, we don't know why. We've got to figure out what the problem is. Of course, look in the nightstand and make sure and, and see if you can find evidence of why he's in this state. And the court writes here, and I'm quoting again, it would be an affront to, the co to common sense, essentially that common sense rationale to hold that the Fourth Amendment required officers to throw up their hands and call it quits once their initial cursory survey, the looking around the apartment, provided no clues as to his condition, right? Look at that appeal to common sense from the Court of Appeals, right? You don't often get that from the courts, but here they say, this is just bananas, right? We don't want officers just being like, well, the Fourth Amendment doesn't let me look, so I'm going to walk away. So here the court holds that the emergency aid doctrine does give law enforcement some leeway to search areas beyond what's in plain view. And the court rules that looking inside of the drawer in the motel room was within the scope of that leeway. And that's an important ruling, right? I think that fits us clearly within the exigent circumstances exception. But again, not because of a criminal investigation here, but instead because we are trying to uh, take care of someone's safety. And the court approves of this search also because, again, it's it's strictly circumcised, circumcised, circumscribed. Sorry, it was strictly circumscribed to the emergency with which the officers are presented. Right? They are just looking for an explanation of what is going on with this guy. And once they find the heroin in this case in the drawer, then the officers, uh, then they, they turn to the, you know, they immediately inform the medics, hey, this is what we've got, we got heroin. And then that's the end of it, right? They don't continue to toss the entire uh, apartment. Now, I want to pause for a second and say, what if the officers then had said, oh, we've got heroin. Well, now let's go ahead and look through the rest of the uh, motel room. Let's go look through his bags and his jackets and his shirts and all that other kind of stuff. Do you think that would have been justified? I mean, again, what was the purpose here? The purpose here is to figure out what is this guy's medical condition, what's going on with him. And once we find the heroin, I think we've got a pretty good explanation. So if we're going to start tossing his other luggage and going through, you know, other things and maybe searching the bathroom and so on, what would be the reason for that? I think at that point, the court's going to be very suspicious that, well, now it looks like you're doing a criminal investigation. You've stopped doing an investigation for his safety and for to assure uh, to, and to help the medics. And now it looks to me like you're doing a, a, a criminal investigation. Uh, and that's, of course, going to depend on the facts of the case, right? Because again, the medics might say to you, you know, there's more going on here than just heroin. There's something else happening to him. 
uh, you know, his heart's going crazy or something like that. There's something else. He's on heroin and something else. See if you can figure out if there's something else uh, here besides heroin. And then maybe, you know, at that point, then you'd, you'd continue to look if the medics needed more information. In this case, they didn't. Uh, but uh, but you should be careful, right? At that point, then you find that heroin, you found a criminal uh, reason for a criminal investigation. What do you got to do? You got to stop and you got to probably get a search warrant for that hotel room. You're not searching anymore. Because uh, again, the only three ways into someone's home and the motel room is a person's home are consent or a warrant of some kind or exigent circumstances. So uh, that's the ruling in this case in McCarthy. Uh, and it gives us a really great roadmap, I think. So this case plus the Marid case really do a great job of articulating the emergency aid exception uh, here in 2021. Where does it stand uh, post-Coniglia, post-Coniglia versus Strom case uh, that removed the community caretaker exception? I do want to mention something else, by the way, about this case that's really fascinating. Um, there's another issue in this case that we don't have to spend a lot of time on, but I want to mention to you because it might be interesting. You know, the General Assembly passed all these safe harbors and protections in the special session uh, last year and in the General Assembly this year, session this year, uh, saying that officers can't search based on the smell of marijuana or solely based on the smell of marijuana, or officers can't stop people for, um, you know, for driving without uh, two headlights or for... Uh, driving without with a um, broken taillight or that kind of thing. Uh, lots of different, ex, you know, the uh, d defective equipment, right? You can't stop somebody for defective equipment anymore, that kind of stuff. And one of the exceptions they wrote in was uh, if, if somebody, there's always been an exception that if you call for your own help for overdose for many years now, I think now for I think three years now, there's been an exception. If you call for help, if you're overdosing, uh, then there's then there's protection for you. You can't be arrested or prosecuted uh, if you call for help for overdose. Well, they changed the law last year to say also if somebody else calls for you for help to help you for an overdose, then you also can't be prosecuted. So in this case, somebody called. We don't know who it is, but somebody called and said this person's overdosing. And when the officers responded, they found him. And so the new version of the law would protect this person from prosecution. Well, that wasn't the law that was in effect at the time that this happened, right? That law took effect after this person uh, overdosed. And the question in this case was, is that law retroactive, right? And we're all dealing with these questions, right? Is this uh, argument about, is the um, prohibition on searches uh, only based on the smell of marijuana, is that retroactive? Is the ban on stops for people driving without headlights retroactive? Is the, um, you know, are these all, all sorts of different restrictions on law enforcement, law enforcement activities retroactive, right? In other words, would an arrest or a stop or a search that you conducted that was perfectly legal at the time, absolutely legal under the law, be somehow voided or made illegal by a statutory change that was enacted after you did what you did, right? After you made the arrest, after you searched him, and so on. And a lot of defense attorneys have been arguing that, yeah, the statutes and the, the statutes changed, and so something the officers did that was perfectly legal has now magically become illegal because the General Assembly changed the law. And in this case, that's exactly what the defense attorney argues. He says, hey, look, you can't... Um, you, you couldn't, it was unlawful for you to have arrested this guy because since then the law has changed and said you can't arrest people when somebody else has called and, and let you know that they're overdosing. 
Well, it's interesting. The Court of Appeals looks at this and they say, that's not the way the law works, right? Laws aren't retroactive unless they clearly say that they're retroactive. And in this case, uh, the law did not clearly say it was retroactive, and therefore it wasn't retroactive. And in addition, there's another, you know, they go through some other reasoning and talk about also why it's not retroactive as well. I think that this ruling, and there's another ruling from the uh, Court of Appeals um, from um, Nelson County earlier this year uh, in a case called Commonwealth versus Murphy is a case from late October, uh, both of which reject retroactive application of some of the recent changes in the law. Uh, that that should hopefully start to put an end to these arguments that these statutory changes are retroactive. They're certainly pro, you know, they certainly apply now, and they certainly apply to all of us out on the road right now. But if this issue comes up, uh, I think the McCarthy case is going to start to resolve those arguments in court, uh, as will the Murphy case as well. So interesting case from the Court of Appeals uh, this week. Uh, there have been, like I said, a lot of great, you know fascinating issues coming up in the various courts. And we're going to be talking a lot about that uh, as the winter rolls on. And then the U.S. Supreme Court is going to start issuing opinions uh, in the spring. They've got some really challenging cases this year uh, before them as well. Not a lot of cases, but a handful of really challenging ones, um, including the Second Amendment case from New York, where you know the, it's, it's a challenge to New York's law against carrying firearms. So uh, stay tuned for all that. But for today, that's all from me. That's all from Big E. If you like the podcast, tell your friends. We're on Apple Podcasts. We're on SoundCloud. We're on Stitcher Podcasts. If you want me to be on another app, let me know what the app is, and I'll see if I can get on there. If you like the podcast, though, tell your friends. If you don't like the podcast, then don't tell your friends. For today, that's all from me. That's all from Big E. Take care, stay safe, and don't get captured. <laughs>